are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. All right, it's been a minute since we've been in James. James has just entered, or we've just entered chapter 2, which is a meaningful, meaningful portion of the book of James. In fact, it's probably one of the most famous, or depending on your perspective, infamous uh, when it comes to the book of James. He's really launching into minute details of how the gospel works itself out very functionally into our lives. If you remember from chapter one, uh, James is no straw man uh, gospel epistle. It is rich with gospel centrality and gospel doctrine. Uh, we'll cover that a little bit. Uh, but James is really coming off this idea of uh, being doers of the word and not hearers only, and then the nature of what pure religion actually is. We discussed uh, last time um, this reality of grace running downhill. Grace runs down to the bottom uh, of life and of humanity, and it meets us probably where we didn't expect to find much grace. There we find it. And so he launches into chapter 2, and the last time we were there, we discussed verses 1 through 7, where, where James actually takes this one little circumstance of our church life and existence. And again, this is written to church people. So this is a Christian issue that James is dealing with. And that is the idea of favoritism or partiality, as he calls it, preferring one person over another. And he says that there are people who come into your church and they are poor and you set them in one place. And then there are people who are rich and have status and have something to contribute and you put them in another place. And you treat people based on what they're able to give you. James talked a lot about in uh, verses 1 through 7, treating people in the way that God actually treats us. And that's on the condition of grace. We've been learning a lot about grace here through the book of James. God, in, uh, God is described in chapter 1, verse 17, as a generous, unconditional, unobligated giver. God gives not on the basis of performance, not on the basis of uh, reciprocity or ways that we can give back. He simply gives out of the goodness and nature of his heart. And in that way, he asks us in chapter 2 then to show partiality or show no partiality in the same way that God has shown us no partiality. He has given to us freely all the graces of Jesus handed to us, whether we were rich or poor. In fact, he assumes that we are all poor. Grace, if, if grace truly does run downhill, then what grace finds is all of us at the bottom. Or as one pastor said, God's office is at the end of your rope. Oh, how true that is. If grace runs downhill, then it meets all of us at the bottom. All of us need the grace of God and all of us find it right where we are. None of us are no different when it comes to hierarchy and getting to God on our own. We are all full of sin, all in need of perfect redemption, or as Ephesians would say, dead in our sins and needing to be made alive. 
That was last time we were in the book of James. Let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. You'll find a very similar theme, but he's going to shift the conversation just ever so slightly. So maybe pay attention. If, uh, 1 through 8, here, he was talking about the grace of God. You'll hear a little bit of a shift in verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law, or excuse me, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, have you, be, have, uh, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of God. Sometimes today I feel like we are all navigating through a minefield of judgment. And we're all kind of bobbing and weaving and ducking and hiding and stepping very gingerly around people we meet and things we see. Uh, You could certainly categorize a lot of our online interactions this way, whether or not you want to like that comment or comment on that post. Ooh. It's a minefield of judgment. Do you ever really know what anyone else is thinking or explaining? Well, just hold on. They will tell you in just a short while. All of us in our different roles and spots and life circumstances, I feel like we're all feeling this way. Uh, If you remember our conversation in James about being able to guard the tongue and us not having very many opinions, I often feel like, We're navigating this minefield of judgmental opinions. And this is, again, this is not just an outside the church problem. In fact, many of my interactions with inside the church, I still feel a little bit of the same way. I feel this a little bit as a pastor, not too much from you guys. You guys are actually pretty nice about about life, which I appreciate. But just as a pastor, I wonder what people think, and I wonder what people would respond to if I posted that or liked that or shared this or said that or interacted with this person judgments all around. I know you moms feel this way. It's tough to go throughout a day without rethinking a million of your decisions because what would X mom do and what would Y mom have said? I'm not sure that that practice fits all the mommy uh, articles online and the best practices for raising your kid and judgment just continues to swirl and be around. And of course, on your job, everything being performance graded, everything based upon promotion and status and pay grade, man, I'm just telling you, it feels like we're walking through minefields of judgment. And don't forget to think about all the things you need to think politically. Ah, man. I wonder if there's a way for us to be free, totally live our lives free from a realm of judgment, if that's even possible in this day and age. I wonder if the church or the gospel would have anything to say about a judgment-free zone. You'll hear that in the life of the church, even uh, new churches like ours, and recognizing some of the, the sphere and context which we're placed in in 21st century America. You know, you'll hear churches being advertised as judgment-free zones, and 
There's always that heart of skepticism. I say, yeah, but not really. Does it ever really exist? There's a real sense to which that actually James, in his conversation about favoritism or even just this idea of judgmentalism or basing people on status or what they have to offer, it's a little comforting that he puts this in the life of the church and even recognizes the elephant in the room. No, none of us are ever free of this kind of reality. It's really on us as a church to continue to pursue this kind of life free from judgment. Do I think we'll ever get there? Probably not this side of heaven, but it's a worthwhile effort for the sake of the gospel to pursue. Oh, and it might just reach a neighbor as well. Tonight, really, James shifts his focus away from God's grace, which gives unconditionally and gives unobligatedly, and starts to move into this discussion on the law, which might be a little bit surprising for us. But actually, remember, he's actually speaking to a bunch of really religious Christians. Remember, these were Hebrew Christians. These were people who were associated and really um, uh, um, understanding the law of God and what it meant for them. And he actually ties this sense of partiality to this sense of lawfulness. He actually brings in this really good idea of lawfulness, or maybe even we would say this a sense of godliness, and says there's some sort of connection between lawfulness and the partiality that we experience. And he helps us to get clarity on the realities of God's law in a way that actually points to the need for the gospel, in a way that actually liberates and frees us from judgment. In fact, he actually says that there's something here, according to the gospel, that is more powerful in its working than even what judgment would work. And he points to this aspect of mercy and says, mercy, it's almost like a theological statement he's arguing for, mercy trumps judgment. And a head-to-head, knockdown, drag-out, WWE fight between mercy and judgment, mercy would always win. 10 out of 10 times. If you're playing Rook, the sweet would always be mercy. It would always trump anything else that would face it. It's amazing to think that, but it's really helpful to think through his logic here. So let's begin talking about this idea of the law. And again, you might not feel like it connects, but James is actually trying to make some, some clear thoughts and give us some clarity about the nature of how God's law operates within our hearts. We talk about often, in fact, we mentioned it in our new members class, that God tends to speak in two particular ways throughout his word. He speaks to us by word of law, which is a category of ought. It's a category of expectation. It's a demand that actually clarifies perfection and what holiness looks like. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's the sense of feeling that you get when somebody challenges you to something and you might say something or hear something in our context that says something like, oh, hold my beer. What are we doing in those moments? We're rising up to the challenge of whatever that expectation is. The law is the ultimate challenge accepted in our spiritual condition. The law clarifies the reality of what God actually demands. We'll talk about the ins and outs of what that is, but God also speaks to us in another way. Though there is expectation, though there is a sense of oughtness before God, how to get to God, what God actually expects and demands of his people, there's also this glowing reality that none of us are actually able to meet God's demands. 
None of us actually have the capacity to meet God's standards. If I can say it this way, there's a reason why God is described as holy. That is to say, he is unique. He's one of a kind. There is no one like him. And as creatures, none of us actually have the capacity, certainly with our sin nature, to actually live up to God's standards. So God actually highlights this idea of gospel, providing another way, not around the expectation, but primarily through the expectation to be able to give by grace what God demands. And so if the law is God's demand, then God's grace is God's gift of the demand being met. That is what we describe as the gospel, as in very general categorical terms. If the law is the bad news of your inability to meet God's standards, then the gospel is God's good news of God meeting the standard for you and giving you the prize. This is how we talk when we talk about uh, how God's word works in our hearts. And we, if we say the law actually kills then we speak about the gospel making us alive. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I set all that up to say that this is what we mean when we're talking about the law and when James is talking about the law in this setting here. In verse 8, he makes it very clear. If you really fulfill the royal law, and this in my estimation would be the Jewish ceremonial law according to the scriptures, the ultimate uh, point of the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says, you are doing quite well. Good for you. The first thing I want to see about the law that James explains here is that the law guides. The law guides. It actually, uh, scripture would go actually on to say that the law becomes our schoolmaster. It guides us, just like our school teachers guide us into right kinds of living or right kinds of learning. So the law is our schoolmaster to guide us into what is right and what is wrong. And James picks up on the reality of something that all these Jewish Christians would know, the main tenets of the Jewish law, of the royal law. Love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James says, well, if you're doing this law, man, you're doing quite well. There's a little nuanced understanding here that maybe we don't pick up as normally that there's actually things in the Jewish law that pointed to this command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, this idea of neighborly love was actually in that uh, setting commonly known as just love for your fellow Jewish neighbor. It was actually more uh, locally thought about. Uh, if you remember uh, many of the accounts of Jesus where he was asked about this idea of who is my neighbor, remember Jesus clarified that the Jews wanted their neighbor to just be their fellow Jew. Right? Just, just the guy right here. And all of their assumptions were, well, we're doing that. That's actually really easy. They were actually uh, taking that law and saying, like, oh, that's, that's the easy part. Love my neighbor. Oh, I love that guy. Oh, he's, he's easy to love. Jesus had a lot of clarity to add about who is your neighbor. Remember the story about uh, the, the Good Samaritan. That whole story was flowing out of the question of who is your neighbor. Remember Jesus' final question to the Pharisees at that moment, who proved to be the neighbor? Well, it was that Samaritan walking along the road, the outsider, the one who didn't fit in. Actually, it, the law passed right by. The priest and um, the, who, who else was it? The priest and 
Someone else. Wow, my, my mind farting right now. Priest and somebody else. Some other Jewish leader. Whatever you said. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, two Jewish leaders. One of them was a priest. Was a scribe? I don't know. Anyway, I need to go back and read that story, apparently. Um, two Jewish leaders walk right on by. And Jesus' question, who proved to be the neighbor? The question wasn't, who was the neighbor? Who actually proved to be the neighbor? Well, it was the outside Samaritan that proved to be the neighbor in that scenario. Jesus wanted to clarify for them that neighbor is anyone you come in contact with. has nothing to do with nationality, has nothing to do with race. Jesus would also clarify this reality in Luke chapter 6 and also the back half of the Sermon on the Mount, which don't forget, James and Jesus had a lot in common. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, But uh, uh, James wants to make very clear here that this understanding of neighbor is actually not the person that's the easiest to love, but actually the person who's the hardest to love. Remember Jesus' words in the back half of the Sermon on the Mount. Even the Gentiles love their own. If you have a Gentile and he lends to somebody, he expects a fair lending back in return. That's easy stuff. But what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Right? Actually love those who can't pay you back. Love those who would rob you, who would steal from you. If they take your cloak, give them something to eat too. Love your enemies. And in this way, Jesus is actually clarifying who their neighbor is. This would help us to understand as the law guides. In fact, I want you to turn to Matthew uh, 5 real quick. Turn to Matthew 5, because we're going to look and see real quick how Jesus uh, actually shines through a lot of these words here in the book of James. Uh, Don't forget, James, as Jesus' half-brother, would have probably a lot of Jesus' words actually memorized. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, at the back end there in verses 46 through 47, uh, I, want, I want to read this passage for you because I, I want you to see James's understanding of how the law guides us into a proper understanding of how heavy the expectation is. He's going to clarify the realities of the law and what the law actually is instructing for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, your Jewish brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus is crying out for and what James is re-clarifying for us is that the expectation of loving your neighbor actually is a true heart of love for anybody you would come in contact with. Quite honestly, this becomes, at least in the Jewish mind, a command that would be rather easy to pat yourself on the back for into this truly impossible, already done with failure. James is saying, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, well, you're doing pretty well. He's actually bending into this reality. If you're loving your Jewish brothers, okay, you're doing fine. Easy peasy, no problem. But verse nine, but if you show partiality, it's easy to love your Jewish brother, right? It's easy to love the church person next to you. But what about the person driving down the street? What about the person you meet with the 
I don't know, funky colored hair. I don't know. What, what about that person? What about the person you work with who just grates on your nerves? What about, what about that person? Are you really, truly loving your neighbor? It's easy to love those who are next to you that you're like. But what about the person you're not like? If you show partiality, if you treat people based on what they're able to give you back, if you treat people based upon their own sin, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. What James is helping us understand is the law actually isn't helping us along here in this moment. The law is actually guiding you into a proper understanding of Jesus' gospel ethic. It's love everybody without partiality. Check all the judgments at the door. Which again, I have to ask, is that even possible? Can I, can I have the capacity to, to live like that? Do I have the capacity even with you? Who again, I, I like many of you, if not all of you. Maybe some of you. But the reality is, I mean, that's, that's, that's impossible, isn't it? I, I need a lot of help. I need outside assistance. I can't, I can't expect to simply get that done. In fact, I've already demonstrated I've not been doing it already. The law guides into a proper understanding of what God demands, but also the law condemns, and this really comes from our previous discussion. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law, whoever keeps the whole law, they can do everything, but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Does that not echo Jesus' words, you must be perfect? No errors, no spots, no blemishes. For he said in verse 11, do not commit adultery, but also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. The law actually doesn't let us discriminate between laws. It doesn't even move the, the fence post or, the, or the, the goal post. It doesn't move the goal post even with our standards or our expectations for Christian living. It doesn't let us move around and, uh, and, and shift the score a little bit. It doesn't let us get away with any of that. The gospel, uh, excuse me, the, the law is set in stone. It's rock solid. It's immovable. It's inflexible. And because of the sin nature that we already possess, it renders all of us guilty. Even the best of us who would recognize, oh man, this person's got, I mean, 99% righteousness. This is a great person. All of us would have to recognize we fall short because we've fallen in one. Jesus' point and James's point, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and James here, is not to see if we actually have that 1% necessary to get in, but rather to lay all of us flat under the expectations of God's demand for us. There is a true reality that the law is super good, super helpful, and that it guides us into the truth and reality that you and I need to hear because we're so easily buying into our own press. And though the law is super helpful and that it actually condemns us and lays us flat and doesn't allow us to get up off the mat, praise God, it doesn't allow us to wiggle free with some aspect of self-justification 
or some sort of like comparison to be able to get out from underneath it. It just lays us flat and holds us there and pins us down to the mat and says, no, you're guilty. All those things are wonderful and good. What we have to recognize is that the law is insufficient for the actual process of salvation. It can't actually do the work of getting us right with God. It can't actually do the work of justification. It can point to the need for it. It can clarify what righteousness looks like. But it can't actually get done what only the gospel can actually get done. And this is part of what James is trying to say. A lot of the reason for our brokenness and our judgmentalism and our partiality, he actually attributes it to a misunderstanding of the law. The reason we give into judgmentalism, the reason we give into partiality, is because our hearts are hell bent in actually working lawfulness into every single relationship that we have. We're sneaking in aspects of, I'm better than you, I deserve more. I've made it farther. God's more kind to me. I'm more acceptable. I'm more lovable. And again, none of us are actually saying those realities. But the fruit of partiality, James is saying, is being borne out by the reality that we haven't been flattened out by the realities of God's standards. What we've brought in is our standards to judge one another. If we all rendered ourselves according to, ju- to God's standards, there would be no space for partiality which corresponds with his verses 1 through 8. If grace truly runs downhill, we all would find ourselves at the bottom. Right where we need grace. My friend, this is the point. Yes, he's talking to a bunch of, if I can say it this way, church people, religious people. And he's saying our problem is that we bring lawfulness into our relationships and it's killing us. It's actually actually killing gospel fruit. And it's all in the name of trying to be good. My friends, there, there is a helpfulness to the law, but it isn't actually used for us to be able to move upward. The law has this gracious flattening effect in all of our lives. It condemns, or as Paul would say, it stops our mouths. It keeps us from speaking. We would do well to listen to Jesus. And, and if you're like, well, you know, help me understand this. I, I would really point you to Jesus' sermons on the mount. And I would, I would encourage you, please don't, don't read the Sermon on the Mount as a kind of challenge accepted, hold my beer moment for Jesus. Really process what Jesus is actually trying to communicate to you. He's trying to lay you flat. He's trying to help religious people find no wiggle room before God by their own doing. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount isn't about you going and doing all those things for Jesus. He's actually trying to stop your mouth, stop you in your tracks. He's saying things like, if you have ears to hear, you need to hear. If you want to listen to what I'm truly saying, you need to listen. A lot of times we think, we hear Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we hear that and interpret that in a weird way, like I need to try a little bit harder. Uh, n- no, no. He, he's literally saying you, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You can't, you can't do it. You can't do it. 
The Beatitudes are saying things like, blessed are those who have poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who come to Jesus, not with a lot of spiritual things, but who come to Jesus with literally nothing to bring to Jesus spiritually. Those ones, those are blessed. Blessed are the meek, right? Listen with that kind of explanation of the law. Really listen into the law. And my friends, you might hear this and say, well, the law is not good, the law is not necessary. Oh, my friend, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. We need the law operating in our hearts all the time because that old Adam is still clinging, seeking to some sort of life on his own that he can hang on to. And the law comes in with a giant axe and just takes that guy's head right off. We need the law's operation in our heart to continue to clarify our sin and to help us stop dead in our tracks of of trying to justify ourselves by it. The law guides and the law condemns. James makes that very clear. And those realities, we've brought the law into our, into our church life and into our relationships and used them for judgment instead of using them as God intends to guide us into a clear understanding of what God actually demands and a truer reckoning with our own disobedience. And he intends for us to listen, not judge. This is where he actually comes in and actually clarifies there is good news, really good news. Only the gospel allows us to live in the judgment-free zone. Okay. And again, I don't pretend that it is fully and finally possible. In other words, I, I will continue to believe that Good Shepherd Bible Church will struggle with judgmentalism as long as Jesus is not here, right? Uh, until our spirits are fully redeemed and our bodies are fully redeemed, Uh, We will struggle with this, and we will need to continue to hear the voice of the law to work ourselves uh, into this. But we also need to hear the realities of the gospel that will actually allow us to live freely, free from judgment-free, from from judgment zones into judgment-free zones. He says this in verse 12, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's used a couple different ways of explaining law. Actually, this one should sound most familiar. Uh, If you remember from chapter 1, verse 22, in fact, I invite you to look there. He's talking about the idea of doing versus hearing. He's going to use this phrase, law of liberty, again. He's going to bring it right back up again in our text. But he says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, that of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Remember, the law is like a mirror that reflects our natural self and it tells us all of our flaws. And he's saying the one who hears is like someone who looks into the law and walks right away and says, nah, that's not true. Walks right away. But a doer of the word is somebody who looks into the perfect law, that of liberty, looks square into the face of the gospel and sees Christ's face shining. He sees his own perfections given for him, the forgiveness of sins given for him. And he looks into that law of liberty and he, by looking, remember the, the hearer first looks And he looks in a way that perseveres. He doesn't stop looking. 
The one who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the gospel, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, the one who actually gets about doing the word is someone who has squared up with the gospel, sees the reality of Christ given for him, and perseveres in that good news by faith and lives his life out of it. That is the doer who does and is blessed in his doing. So James is encouraging us here in verse 12 of our passage, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. How are we as blood-bought people judged? Under the law, or you can say the scriptures in general, or the you can even talk about the expectation, but we've, we've clarified it as just the way of talking about scripture, by the scripture or the law of liberty, which we would simply just come to understand the gospel. Only the gospel can give us that kind of liberty and freedom. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by what Jesus has done for you. That's how we're judged. That's how we are rendered. That's the final verdict of your life and my life. Not our own performance, not on our own uh, abilities for God, not on what we've done or have not done, simply based on what Jesus has finished for us. That's, That's the law of liberty, and that's how we are reckoned. And so he says, so speak and act as if that's how you are reckoned. That's how you are judged. He throws in the little converse way in verse 13, this little converse statement, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If you don't, if you don't get this mercy thing, if you don't understand this mercy thing, okay, then you're, you're not actually going to be judged that way. You're going to be judged straight up. You'll be judged by the, the realities of the law. But if you understand God's mercy for you in the face of Christ, That's going to transform you into a person who then lives by mercy. What he's actually going to say here is there's something about the nature of God's mercy fixed in Christ that has a way of triumphing over the realities of judgment by the law here and now. That certainly is the case with God. God is keeping a direct uh, score of all of our sins and all of our failures. And what he has done in Christ is he's put all of that record on him and demonstrated mercy to us. And that's how we are judged. And then he says that reality will then be shown in the life of the church as well to those who have received mercy. Mercy will triumph over judgment in our relationships too. We talk about union with Christ and what that means for us. We sang about it in Before the Throne, one with himself, I cannot die. We love these realities of thinking about ourselves one with Christ and how you know we're not uh, what we do, we are what Jesus has done for us. We love those realities, don't we? What James is asking for us to do is not merely think about those realities for us. Though he's certainly saying, don't forget that. Remember, that's what the hearer and the doer is all about. But he's actually asking us now to think about those realities for others. Take the mercy of God that we know and love, that we love personally, and then think about how God has demonstrated his mercy for the rest of the church. And instead of acting by virtue of law and carving each other up by virtue of God's expectations, or more importantly, our expectations and standards, actually allow the mercy of Christ to triumph as it naturally does over the judgment of God and view each other, not on the basis of what they do or haven't done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for them. Treat 
them the way God treats them. See them the way God sees them. Not just you the way God sees you. That's certainly true. But view other people as blood-bought, forgiven people who aren't the sum of their failures and the sum of their righteousness. View them based upon what Jesus has done. So speak and act in that way. I love how James doesn't necessarily even give us a reason to, to argue with this statement. He says it as a theological treatise statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's the reality. You're saying, where do we see that in Scripture? Well, my friends, just look at the resurrection. Mercy always triumphs over judgment in God's economy. You say, well, isn't God's judgment, isn't his righteousness important? Oh, 100%. 100%. The law is super important. God's standard is super important. But don't miss, 100%, don't miss God's heart of mercy. That through the law, that is through righteousness, God would give people who don't deserve any amount of grace or mercy, don't forget that he's intent on giving bad people good things. It's part of the heart of God. He's a good gift giver. That's what James doesn't want us to forget. God's mercy triumphs over every aspect of your sin that you would judge yourself for, that even God himself would judge you for, that Satan would accuse you for, and that anything that the church could ever say to you. God's mercy, what he has done for you in Christ, is stronger than anything you, by the law, could be condemned for. It's a powerful, powerful word. And he's saying, so speak and act in that way. Live your life as if that's your judgment zone. The judgment has been poured out. You've been forgiven. Christ has set you free. Oh, my friends, mercy triumphs over judgment. Only the gospel of God's mercy can allow us to live in this judgment-free zone. James is very clear that pure religion actually pursues this kind of mercy over judgment. And I wonder what our church would continue to look like, our community groups, just our individual relationships, if we, instead of looking at all the ways we can criticize and pick at each other and diversify and set ourselves aside and mix from other people, would actually draw us together in love and compassion on the basis of Christ. I wonder what a church experience would look like if that were actually true. And again, I don't pretend that we're going to do that perfectly. No church will. But where has God called you to lay aside other people's sins or other people's failures or other people's quirks, other people's personality traits, the way that they've hurt you, the way that they've wronged you, and allow the reality and the truth that God's mercy, not might, not should, not could, but God's mercy does triumph over judgment and allow Jesus, uh, this, Jesus' sufficiency to be sufficient for them just as it is for you. Pray that that would shape our gospel relationships and the way we treat each other as we walk by faith. Let's pray.